This show may contain words that would offend the sensibility of certain habitués of monasteries. It's Monday, February 4th, 2019. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Don't listen to what he tweets. Just listen to what he says. Okay, don't listen to what he says. Just pay attention to what he does. You know, there are a lot of rules and ways to process Donald Trump, and they're all designed to orient, really to protect the listener. Sometimes the advice is like looking at an eclipse. It's about self-preservation. And you may remember Trump violated that particular rule at no harm to himself. Other times, the advice is just about how to listen, how to hear the words so that you have a sense of what Trump is saying, but so that they don't infect you, sort of like how ultra-Orthodox Jewish couples supposedly have sex through a hole in the sheet. Now, theologically speaking, that is an example to take seriously, but not literally from what I understand, but the point is clear. Just taking whatever Trump serves you and then putting it through your ear holes and into your brain parts, it is a fool's errand but sometimes I like to, just for fun. Just to pretend, you know, what if we did have a president who was maybe even mostly wrong, but at least based on actual facts. Perhaps he came to poor conclusions, but you know, the logic along the way was okay. Or maybe he had a process for acquiring information that actually comported with how the real world worked. What if he even put forth an argument that I could pay attention to and consider on its merits. That's a little game I like to play with myself when I listen to Donald Trump doing an interview because it would be such a great joy to have that kind of president. We don't. We have this kind of president. I am going to trust the intelligence that I'm putting there, but I will say this. My intelligence people, if they said, in fact, that Iran is a wonderful kindergarten, I disagree with them 100%. Well, yes, if they were to say Iran was kindergarten, then... You could give them all a timeout in the naughty chair. Now, what they did say, or what Dan Coats, the director of national intelligence, said in front of Congress and what got the president all worked up was he said, quote, while we do not believe Iran is currently undertaking the key activities we judge necessary to produce a nuclear device, Iranian officials have publicly threatened to push the boundaries of the JCPOA restrictions if Iran does not gain the tangible financial benefits it expected from the deal. CIA director Gina Haspel added that Iran could quickly move out of compliance with the old Obama-negotiated nuclear deal. So at the moment, technically, they're in compliance, but we do see them debating amongst themselves as they fail to realize the economic benefits they hope for from the deal. So the Iranians are not building a nuke now, but they could which is not non-proliferation, okay? This is not kindergarten stuff, even though Trump literally tweeted the day of those comments, quote, intelligence should go back to school. Clearly, the intelligence officials were saying that Iran is a potential threat. News that isn't wonderful. Can't say it's wonderful, which is why Trump heard them as saying. So when my intelligence people tell me how wonderful Iran is, if you don't mind, I'm going to just go by my own counsel. Okay, here's the problem. Among the problems. The intel chiefs testify before Congress on Wednesday. I played you some of that. Trump 
tweeted his disapproval. And then on Thursday, Trump stages a picture with Haspel and Coates and tells the media that they were totally misquoted and taken out of context. The entire hearing was on C-SPAN. But according to Trump, his knowledge of the briefing came from the inaccurate media. So he wasn't really criticizing them. He was criticizing the reports that he got about what they said, even though he could have gotten his own reports or switched on C-SPAN. Then he does this interview with Margaret Brennan, where she reads to him the quotes criticizing the intel community, where the answer could be, oh, yeah, yeah, that was wrong. I was reacting to something that was taken out of context. He doesn't say that. He uses the opportunity to say, I'm going to be tougher on Iran than they were, even though they were pretty tough on Iran. Again, this whole thing, it's my fault. It's my fault for listening. It's my fault for trying to parse his sentences. It's my fault for taking his wild accusations as approaching the truth. I will have to go back to watching news through a slit in the sheet and not mixing my meatheads with my dairy. On the show today, I spiel about the Virginia governor with a penchant for moon dancing and face planting. But first, he is a Washington Post reporter who is breaking news left and right about the president's entanglements in Russia. Why? Because he's a good reporter and because the president has a lot of entanglements in Russia. Greg Miller, author of The Apprentice, up next. A hostile foreign power decides which candidate they would rather have lose a U.S. election. They effectively hack and steal internal communication of that candidate and her party. The opposing candidate tells the hostile foreign power, go ahead and release that damaging, illegally obtained information via cutouts or at least arm length agents. They do so immediately. It works. My question is, what is the controversy? about this. Clearly illegal. We know it all. And it maybe was because it wasn't a secret communication. It seems less than shocking, but it should be. That is what's known. That is what's documented. In the new book by Pulitzer Prize winning reporter for the Washington Post, Greg Miller, called The Apprentice, Trump, Russia, and the Subversion of American Democracy, the whys and the hows are filled in, as well as a bunch more of the what's in terms of Trump and the Russians and the election, Greg Miller is here. Hello, Greg. Thanks for joining me. Hey, thanks for having me. So as was clearly implied in that intro, I do think, and I know you think, that if some of the stuff that was out in the open was unearthed as a piece of subterfuge, we might be more scandalized by it. But there's also a whole bunch of stuff that was subterfuge, that was the stuff that the Trump campaign didn't want us to know that's come out. And there still seems to be an open question about how corrupt this whole ordeal was. Yeah, I think it's I think it's really interesting the extent to which we ha- struggle to process stuff that plays out in front of us uh, the way we would process it if it t- if we learned about it that it had taken place in secret, right? I mean, the Trump notorious line during the campaign, Russia, if you're listening, and then Russia, in fact, responding that very day and, and launching uh, spear phishing attacks against Hillary Clinton email networks. If a, any kind of political candidate in the United States 
had in secret enlisted that kind of help or asked for help from Russia along those lines. And we had evidence that Russia responded, oh, my God, there would be a freakout. But because it happens right in front of us, right under our noses, we really don't know what to make of it even now. Um, What in the reporting in this book that might not have been in your Washington Post reporting do you think uh, would cause the biggest headache for Trump and the administration? His financial entanglements with Russia to me are really interesting and probably the most compelling explanation for his behavior toward Putin. So go ahead, lay out that explanation. That he is, you know, we we very recently learned that he, that the Trump uh, team was still pursuing a, a deal, a real estate or development deal in Moscow, deep into his presidential campaign. Almost everyone in the upper ranks of that campaign was treating that campaign as two things: one, a political race, but two, a get-rich scheme, a way to enrich themselves, make connections, position themselves for contracts and others afterward. That's not just Trump and his family. That's Mike Flynn. That's that you can go down the list. But even before that, Trump spends a decade trying to do a Trump Tower Moscow. He is constantly trying to make connections with officials in Russia. He is practically begging for a meeting with Vladimir Putin when he hosts the Miss Universe pageant in Moscow. Uh, And so, I mean, for Trump, money is just all-consuming. And to me, I find that a more convincing explanation for his constant, unending, unvarying praise and supplication toward Putin than the idea that Putin might have some leverage over him because he has a tape of him with prostitutes. Right. So um, after, far after... Donald Trump became the presumptive nominee. He was still, or his organization was still in talks to do a Moscow Tower deal. While he was president, this is a Trump news conference, February 2017. Russia's a ruse. I have nothing to do with Russia. Haven't made a phone call to Russia in years. Don't speak to people from Russia. I have nothing to do with Russia. To the best of my knowledge, no person that I deal with does demonstrably untrue, we find out from your reporting or the reporting of others and Michael Cohen's testimony. Yeah, I mean, he's, 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 there's, this is another area of just fundamental dishonesty with the public. While he's campaigning for president, Trump and his team is pursuing a Trump Tower Moscow deal. Um, that's just something that we should have the right to know and in our from a, from a political candidate especially one who's got the GOP nomination and has a good shot at, shot at being president and is behaving very strangely by uh, American political standards about Russia yeah um, I want to ask about some specifics. I'm fascinated by the Jared Kushner Kislyak meeting where I, I tell me how much you know about the meeting because I think the upshot from the reporting dealt with uh, how the communication was supposed to go down, that Kushner wanted to use Russian facilities to communicate. But what was the substance of what they wanted to communicate about? So this is another whole fascinating thing to me. And, And across the book, I think this is true. Much of what we know about Trump and the Trump team's interactions with Russia, we know from U.S. intelligence monitoring of Russians. We don't know it because Trump people were up forthright about it. We don't know it because they came forward and said, yes, this happened. It was almost a lot of it is because of U.S. intelligence efforts to figure out what Russia is up to. And so in this case, there's a meeting. Kislyak has a meeting with Jared Kushner, has a huge portfolio coming into the Trump administration. He's trying to size him up. And they're they're talking about what they can do in Syria and stuff like that. And Kushner has a crazy proposal, tells the Russian ambassador 
listen, we'd love to talk to you about this further. How can we have a conversation with Moscow and suggests using Russia's the Russian embassy's communications systems <laughs> to do this. So he's basically you have a senior advisor to the incoming president telling the Russian ambassador, gosh, we'd love to walk into your embassy so that we can talk with Moscow without U.S. any U.S. agencies being aware of what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. It's so astonishing that the Russian ambassador, after this proposal, reports this back to his his bosses at the Kremlin, and and is and it's basically, can you believe this? They that Jared Kushner wanted to come in and use our communication systems. It's unbelievable, uh, and this is the reason we know about it is because. Not because the Trump people reported it, but because Ambassador Kislyak reported it to his bosses and we were listening. The we is uh, the government we is sources. Like CIA, NSA, the U.S. intelligence. Right. And then, and then that was disclosed or leaked to reporters? Yes. And this comes out, not just disclosed or leaked, but this is, you know, th- this is now. One of the misunderstandings about what Mueller is is up to is that he, you know, he obviously has FBI agents. He has uh, Department of Justice lawyers who are handling these prosecutions. He also has the whole CIA NSA file on Trump and Russia. He yeah. knows everything that the NSA, the National Security Agency, which is the United States and the world's biggest eavesdropping uh, agency, um, has on interactions between Trump officials and Russians. It does seem to me that this is a little sideline, but I'll make the observation. It does seem to me that he has done, Trump has done a lot of things in his professional life that are clearly illegal. They just weren't prosecuted. I think of the foreign corrupt practices stuff. I think about um, his, uh, his inheritance from his father, where you state the value of real estate one, ways, one way to the IRS and another way when you're asking for a loan. Uh, I think about just a bunch of stuff that he does with buildings. He even jokes about having to deal with uh, the mafia, for instance. So I do wonder if, you know, someone says, okay, now we're going to take all these things that were in the gray or black but non-prosecuted area and we're going to actually bring scrutiny to them and prosecute them. I think even Manafort, some of the charges against him were things that were just done in his line of work. But hey, now we have a reason and impetus to prosecute them. Might some of uh, the Mueller uh, report just be a litany of things that are clearly illegal that he wasn't even trying to hide? I think so. And I also think it's really interesting. You're raising a super important point here, which is, to me, a lot of the crime and alleged crime and suspected crime that has been documented over the past year and a half is crime that probably goes unscrutinized or at least unprosecuted if Trump doesn't run for president and if these people don't join the campaign. Manafort, if he hasn't doesn't hook up with Trump in 2016 – uh, who knows? I mean, it's hard. I mean, he, the FBI had already taken a, a look at his financial dealings and decided it wasn't worth the trouble. Mike Flynn could, it was, who was setting up his own company and doing consulting work that now looks awfully problematic in terms of what he was letting Turkey pay him to do and so forth. Yeah, possibly my God, kidnap my God, he, American residents. Right, my God, yeah. I mean, he, who's to say he wouldn't have been able to just go ahead and do that sort of thing and get away with it or emerge unscathed if he doesn't sign on with the Trump campaign and right. Trump himself, right? I mean, so this is a, this isn't, a lot of this is exposing areas of criminal financial conduct that appear to go unexamined to a large measure in our country unless there is a really compelling reason for authorities to look at it. I mean, it's, it's, it's astonishing to me in some ways. 
What does Trump or the White House do to try to either intimidate you off a story, throw you off the scent, or or distract you from the reporting you've been doing? There was a there. Was, I wrote a story a, a year and a half ago that got a lot of attention, and it was about what Trump had disclosed to Russian officials in the Oval Office: highly classified information about a terrorist plot. White House den- not, denies it, of course. The, the story pans out. Of course, Trump confirms it in a tweet a couple days later. But before that happens, we're on conference calls with White House officials. We're at the Washington Post. They're yelling at us that this is false. Not only that, they're telling us you need to go – they're threatening to launch this internal leaks investigation to get at our sources and telling me in this call in front of my editors that I need to go back and call whatever sources I had relied on for this story. Mm-hmm. And I remember sitting there thinking what they are hoping is that I will go leave this call and go light up the phones of sources that they are now trying to identify. Um, it was really strange and unsettling. Um, I, I haven't encountered that kind of move before. Did you worry they they knew about your outgoing calls, or they were looking at maybe the incoming calls of who you'd be? Uh, I think it's the latter. Yeah. I think they're hoping to get some additional help. Right? They're hoping for clues that mm-hmm. we're going to that we're going to expose our sources. We had meetings at the post during this stretch in which we were meeting with experts who were telling us we had some sources indicating to us that private investigators might be involved in trying to uh, dig up information about us reporters in a way to discredit us and that we should be careful about what kind of trash we put drag out to the curb each week. Mm. Um, there, the most unsettling moment for me, I think, came uh, a little bit later when the Jim Comey memos were released. You remember that Comey, the FBI director, wrote these lengthy memos on his every interaction with the president because he was so troubled by what Trump would say that he felt he had to memorialize it. Right. In one of them, he and Trump are in the Oval Office talking about the leaks that are happening, how news organizations are even getting details about Trump's own calls and how Trump is saying, can't we go back to putting reporters in jail? And Comey is saying, that would be, I'm all in favor of this. Uh, we need to put some heads on pikes as an example to stop these kinds of leaks. Mm-hmm. They're specifically referencing stories that I wrote. So here you have the president and the FBI director in an Oval Office, a secret meeting in the Oval Office talking about putting reporters in jail and putting heads on pikes. And you know, we don't know it until, until uh, Comey's memos are released months later. Right. Did you take Comey to just be yes-anding him? or did no, you I have felt it? like this was one area in which he and Trump were actually in agreement. They didn't agree on much, but this was one, one area where I don't think Comey was really – I mean he since has sort of repositioned himself as a champion of – the press and so forth, but mm-hmm. he, he he wasn't a champion of the of the press in that moment for sure. Oh, and here's the, another question. I found it so illuminating your reporting on Cozy Bear and Fancy Bear and those units. What do you think the point of Mueller indicting by name specific people within those units who no one thinks the United States will ever have a chance to actually uh, pick up? Is it just to say I, I'm on to you? Yeah, the the Mueller um, indictments and criminal complaints have numerous purposes. In some cases, they are to lay out the path for a prosecution. But in others, they're more of a public information. They're more of a, a story, an accounting of what has happened here. So when he goes after these Russian intelligence services, he knows he's never going to get these people in an American courtroom. He's never going to put them in behind bars. But – Wow, that that whole indictment 
is full of details, so detailed that I remember speaking with CIA officials who were astonished by what they disclosed about American intelligence capabilities. I mean, he's literally identifying the keyboards yeah. at which these Russian operatives are launching spear phishing attacks against Americans. So I think one of the main purposes for Mueller is to refute the president, is to show uh, beyond the pale of any doubt that this is real. It's so real, we can actually point you to the people who were carrying out these operations from within the Kremlin. And this will be my last question, for real. So you have many sources within the intelligence community. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm not going to ask you what you think should be done in terms of a Mueller report and impeachment. And there is a debate about the politics of it and who knows what the Mueller report will say. But if the Mueller report reflects even the majority of your reporting. What do your, your sources within the national security community think should be done in terms of uh, letting the president get away with it? Hmm. I wouldn't, I wouldn't claim to have conducted a comprehensive enough survey of their views on that kind of question to be able to speak for them. Let me try to answer it in a different way, though. You know, there are a lot – I have gotten a lot of questions since this book came out about just the, the volume of leaked information coming out of this administration and this White House and various agencies. And we're learning things that people are not supposed to tell us for many reasons. But one of the overwhelming motivations, I think, for many sources in this era, and by that I mean the Trump era, is just their concern about what's happening, what's happening to their agencies and what's happening to their country. Learning what a national, an incoming national security advisor told a Russian ambassador in an intercepted phone call is not something I would ordinarily expect to achieve as a reporter. Um, it, it's not something we would ordinarily get any glimpse of. But when that incoming administration is lying to the American public about what transpired on that call, suddenly you have a bunch of people across various parts of the government who have seen the truth, who know what's in that transcript and who have a new motivation to reveal that. I mean, and that's that's played out over and over and over again. Greg Miller, winner of multiple Pulitzer Prizes, national security correspondent of The Washington Post, is the author of The Apprentice, Trump, Russia, and the Subversion of American Democracy. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. This was great. And now, the spiel. There is a case to be made for preserving Ralph Northam's position as governor. Ralph Northam is not making that case. Northam, instead, took responsibility, then denied responsibility for a yearbook page which showed a Klansman and a minstrel show participant. He gave a press conference wherein he tried to, I don't know, humanize himself? Own up to it? Not really? He tried to connect with all of us over the, of course, universal difficulty in removing shoe polish from one's face. And the reason I used a very little bit is because I don't know if anybody's ever tried that, but you cannot get shoe polish off. Later, when asked to moonwalk, the governor seemed as if he was considering it until Pam dissuaded him. It was that you danced the moonwalk? That's right. Are you still able to moonwalk? Uh, <coughs> Inappropriate My wife says inappropriate circumstances. So like I said, he's not his own best witness. 
Though in that one moment we just heard, Pam gave Ralph better advice than Rudy seems ever to have given Donald or vice versa. Every, and I mean every national Democrat, has called for Northam to step down, as has mostly every Virginia local politician. There is yet to be a poll specifically asking Virginia residents, should your governor go? But his overall popularity has dipped by 41%. So why then stay? Because there's no process here. Because we're taking away the expressed will of voters. Because we haven't actually gotten any independent assessment of facts. Oh, I understand why national Democrats want him gone. If I were one of them, I would want him gone too. Because you're making the statement, either we're the party that stands up against such displays, or we're the Republicans. And to be fair to the Republicans, yes, they have Steve King in their midst, but the Florida Secretary of State immediately left his job after a years-old picture of him in blackface emerged. Kirsten Gillibrand, Cory Booker, Hillary Clinton, every Democrat with an aim to increase their party's appeal and to simplify their branding, we're against racism, has interests, however, different from every voter in Virginia. A voter in Virginia might want an able governor. He or she should at least want some semblance of process and fact-finding if their elected official asks for such. And look, I have no problem if Ralph Northam steps down. It was a grossly insensitive display of racism. And that press conference, whoo boy, did I mention the part where he spoke of facial recognition software to find out who is a guy wearing a hood? But just because I'm me, I do sometimes like to pump the brakes, especially when there's 99.5% approval of something. And every panel discussion I'm on ranges from he should leave now to he should have left yesterday. I do think, is there any other side to this? I think maybe, yes, there is. Though, not only is Ralph Northam not making it, maybe it can't be made in this specific case. But I do think of this. We lurched into a quick reaction with the Covington MAGA hat kids. I'm not here to re-argue that one. But the one thing we could agree on was, look, I think we all know that Twitter tends to manipulate our emotions with incendiary images. So if that was true, and almost everyone agrees that it is, then isn't it a good point when an incendiary image comes across our consciousness not to react with only quick outrage? Maybe just slowing down. Even slowing down in cases with real live 35-year-old racist acts is slowing down to check to see what actually happened, figuring out what we know, how we know this. Now, I am going to blow the whistle on myself. If I were a PR guy hired by Ralph Northam, I'd be saying the same things, but it would be for a different purpose. That guy would just want the outrage to blow over so Northam gets through it. But maybe we should all want this moment of outrage to blow over and not to have complacency settle in, but just to have principle settle in, a standing principle over a quick passion. I understand why someone would be very passionate about this to make such a judgment, to make such an insistence in the throes of passion might not be as effective in this case or in other cases were it made with due deliberation. And by deliberation and taking some time, I don't mean forever, I don't even mean weeks and weeks and weeks, but it seems to me like we can have a process. It's not impossible to have a process. These things come up every few months and we lurch, we quickly grab. But why not just get one of these dozens of good government types or your professional ethicists who lurk on Twitter or your, your plenty of political professionals 
who have experience with scandals and maybe impeachments on different levels and come up with a timeline for the next time. Governor Northam, I think, could propose this, could say, let's use this opportunity to create a more regular process for every official who has yet to confront a yearbook picture or a signed yearbook or a video clip with a sex toy on her head during a Christmas party. Let's come up with something approaching a best practice for stupid actions. Everyone, every one individual actor experiences scandal individually. But we as a public, as a body politic, we are constantly experiencing these scandals collectively. So I'm just saying, let's be rigorous about it. We live in a time of immediate dissemination of visual evidence, quick twitch emotional reactions, incentivized polarization, and weaponized recrimination. Instant images, reptilian brains, and cancel culture. It's not like we're going to avoid mistakes. We've already made mistakes. Maybe the mistake isn't Ralph Northam. If I had to guess, I would definitely say it's not Ralph Northam. He's not the example of a mistake and being too quick to judge. But it's not like even a quote-unquote guilty party wouldn't make for a good test case. Have you noticed how closely the phrase lesson learned is linked to mistakes were made? We chastise ourselves for jumping to conclusions when the conclusions are wrong. But shouldn't we look at the jumping? We don't jump any slower or leap any less far the next time. And if the conclusions are right, we don't look back. We don't question the leaps. I'm not arguing for not guilty in this case. I'm not arguing that any evidence was doctored or tainted. I'm not arguing for any conclusion other than to actually come to our conclusion in the most considered way we can. And that's it for today's show. Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader produced the gist, and I know what keyboards they use to do it. I call Pierre fancy and Daniel cozy, but I've yet to decide the species of varmint upon which to affix those appellations. TJ Raphael, senior producer of Slate Podcasts, has now been appointed ombudsman for inappropriate circumstance. The gist. Look, if my intel folks are saying that the Ayatollahs are playing patty cake in the sandbox with Hezbollah while the Al-Aqsa martyr brigades are singing Kumbaya at the Jimboree wearing feety pajamas... I think I've just stumbled onto the greatest Dennis Miller joke ever. Oomperu, depru, dupru, and thanks for listening.